the vision of Obadiah. This is what the sovereign Lord says about Edom. We have heard a message from the Lord. An envoy was sent to the nations to say, rise, let us go against her for battle. See, I will make you small among the nations. You will be utterly despised. The pride of your heart has deceived you, you who live in the clefts of the rocks and make your homes on the heights. You who say to yourself, who can bring me down to the ground? Though you soar like the eagle and make your nest among the stars, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. If thieves came to you, if robbers in the night, oh, what a disaster awaits you. Would they not steal only as much as they wanted? If grape pickers came to you, would they not leave a few grapes? But how Esau will be ransacked, his hidden treasures pillaged. All your allies will force you to the border. Your friends will deceive and overpower you. Those who eat your bread will set a trap for you, but you will not detect it. In that day, declares the Lord, will I not destroy the wise men of Edom, those of understanding in the mountains of Esau? Your warriors, Teman, will be terrified, and everyone in Esau's mountains will be cut down in the slaughter. Because of the violence against your brother Jacob, you will be covered with shame. You will be destroyed forever. On the day you stood aloof while strangers carried off his wealth and foreigners entered his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem, you were like one of them. You should not gloat over your brother in the day of his misfortune, nor rejoice over the people of Judah in the day of their destruction, nor boast so much in the day of their trouble. You should not march through the gates of my people in the day of their disaster, nor gloat over them in their calamity in the day of their disaster, nor seize their wealth in the day of their disaster. You should not wait at the crossroads to cut down their fugitives, nor hand over their survivors in the day of their trouble. The day of the Lord is near for all nations. As you have done, it will be done to you. Your deeds will return upon your own head. Just as you drank on my holy hill, so all the nations will drink continually. They will drink and drink and be as if they had never been. But on Mount Zion will be deliverance. It will be holy and Jacob will possess his inheritance. Jacob will be a fire and Joseph a flame. Esau will be stubble and they will set him on fire and destroy him. There will be no survivors from Esau. The Lord has spoken. People from the Negev will occupy the mountains of Esau, and people from the foothills will possess the land of the Philistines. They will occupy the fields of Ephraim and Samaria, and Benjamin will possess Gilead. This company of Israelite exiles who are in Canaan will possess the land as far as Zarephath. The exiles from Jerusalem who are in Sepharad will possess the towns of the Negev. Deliverers will go up on Mount Zion to govern the mountains of Esau and the kingdom will be the Lord's. And then we're turning to Revelation chapter 11, which is on page 1,758, and we're just going to read um, verses 15 to 18. So chapter 11, verses 15 to 18. The seventh angel sounded his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven which said, 
The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Messiah, and he will reign forever and ever. And the 24 elders who were seated on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshipped God, saying, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, the one who is and who was, because you have taken your great power and have begun to reign. The nations were angry, and your wrath has come. The time has come for judging the dead and for rewarding your servants, the prophets, and your people who revere your name, both great and small, and for destroying those who destroy the earth. Thanks so much, Ali. Uh, well, we're going to unpack those passages in just a moment. Please join me in praying and talking to God now. Father God, we praise you that you are a God who speaks to us by your word. We pray now as we uh, seek to understand your word, as we read Obadiah, as I try to explain it, that you'll help us to hear what you are saying clearly. In Jesus' name, amen. Right, well, something you may not know about me, but you might have kind of picked up on, is I have a bit of a twang in my accents. I finish my words that end with the letter R with the letter R. That's uh, because I spent a few years growing up in the south of America, uh, in Georgia, to be precise. Now, one important piece of American history is the Civil War, or as Southerners like to call it, the Yankees' War of Aggression. Now, in this war, it was said that brother fought against brother. And at least in one of the battles of the war, this was literally the case. In 1862, at the Battle of Secessionville, South Carolina, we had two brothers, Alexander and James Campbell, on the same battlefield. They'd migrated over from Scotland. Alexander had settled up north in New York, and and James had settled down south, South Carolina. And the battle, as they did their duty, brought them head to head on the battlefield. We see from their letters to each other that they said, I really hope I don't see you out there because I'm going to have to shoot you. They didn't end up shooting each other, but brother against brother. Or perhaps a more recent example, a more contemporary one. Uh, Did you know that from the 9th to the 13th centuries, Ukraine and Russia were both a part of the same territory, uh, Kievian Rus. They're part of this land, but fast forward through history, we have uh, Mongol invasion, we have differing opinions about foreign policy, leaderships, philosophies about engagement with the West. And you get to today, where these once brothers are at war, brother against brother. Now, there is no sibling rivalry in the Bible so big, Cain and Abel or Joseph and his brothers, there's there's no sibling rivalry so big as the rivalry between Jacob and Esau. It dominates the story of the Old Testament behind the scenes from Genesis all the way through to Malachi. It shows its head again in the New Testament, in Revelation. We read moments ago about this final judgment in Romans and Hebrews. In fact, did you know that Herod the Great, the king who tried to kill Jesus, was actually one of Esau's great-great-great-great-grandkids? This rivalry between Jacob and Esau is there all the way through. And it starts way back in the beginning. Jacob tricks Esau, his brother. He steals his inheritance. Esau gets a little bit murdery in response. So Jacob runs away. He he hightails it out of there. Years later, they make up, but they can't live together. Jacob takes the plains and Esau takes the hills of Seir. 
Uh, we see throughout their history, Israel comes out of Egypt in the Exodus, and we have Esau's people saying, no, you're not coming through here. Find another way. They line up and show their force as an army, telling Jacob, you're not allowed through here. Or later on, we get time and time again, Israel and Edom fighting. Edom, Esau, just synonyms, by the way. Uh, in 1 Samuel, all the way through to the end of 2 Chronicles. And it all culminates here in 586 BC, when Babylon's forces come and destroy Jerusalem. We find out that Esau's descendants play a role in Judah's defeat. Not only that, they crack open the champagne. They toast the destruction of Jerusalem. It's on the back of all this that Obadiah's prophecy comes onto the scene. Obadiah looks forward to the day when God will triumph and Esau will lose. He speaks God's word about Esau's current triumph and Jacob's loss. And he looks forward to the day when the only kingdom that lasts will be God's. So Obadiah's prophecy, please keep it open there in front of you if you still have it in your Bibles. Obadiah's prophecy opens with the red-hot word of God's judgment against Edom. Look with me again at verses 1 to 4. The vision of Obadiah. This is what the sovereign Lord says about Edom. We have heard a message from the Lord. An envoy was sent to the nations to say, Rise, let us go against her for battle. See, I will make you small among the nations. You will be utterly despised. The pride of your heart has deceived you, you who live in the clefts of the rocks and who make your home on the heights. You who say to yourself, who can bring me down to the ground? Though you soar like the eagle and make your nest among the stars, from there I will bring you down, says the Lord. See, God is active in judging Edom. He is uniting the nations against Edom in verses 1 to 2. He's sending out the envoys saying, come on, gather together. We're going to take Edom down. But we then find out something important about Edom. There in verse 3, he has deceived himself. Read it again with me. The pride of your heart has deceived you. Now, up on the screen behind me is an artwork by Herbert James Draper from the late 19th century called Lament for Icarus. Uh, he's picking up on that ancient Greek myth of, of Icarus, uh, where Daedalus, his father, makes two sets of wings from feathers and wax to fly, to flee from the island of Crete. Now, Daedalus warned Icarus, don't fly too high, don't get too close to the sun. But Icarus, in his playfulness, his adventurous boys being boys, flies higher and higher until the sun's rays melt the wax. His wings fall apart and he comes crashing down and drowns. Now, doesn't that sound a little bit like Edom? In verses 3 and 4, Though you soar like the eagle and make your nest among the stars, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. See, Edom, like Icarus, is full of pride. He has made his home in the mountains of Seir, an impenetrable fortress. You know, they literally have the high ground against any invaders who would make their way there. He could tell himself, who can touch me here? I'm untouchable. And yet, like the proverbial Icarus, God promises to bring them down. So what is God uniting the nations to do? Well, in verses 5 and 6, we see that Edom will be stripped bare. Edom's wealth will vanish overnight. It'll disappear. Edom's allies are going to deceive him. We see that in verse 7. All your allies will force you to the border. Your friends will deceive and overpower you. They'll be betrayed. They'll be stabbed in the back by people they thought were their friends. 
but they're not going to have anyone to turn to. And in verses 8 and 9, we see that Edom and all his leaders will be destroyed, his, his wise men, his mighty warriors. God will have a complete and utter triumph over Esau's nation. Now, what we see clearly here, Edom, Esau thought he was untouchable. His friends, his security, his wealth, his, his wise men, his warriors, he was proud. And yet Obadiah shows us that no one is untouchable to God. God will judge evil and injustice. I mean, maybe he'll let you get away with it for a little bit. The the judgment that's described here doesn't happen for nearly 200 years. But it did come. So here's the question for each of us here today. Do you think you're untouchable? You know, do we believe the oldest lie in the Bible, the lie that says God won't judge, the lie that says God won't kill you, you won't surely die? You know, do we believe the lie that says God doesn't judge? God doesn't care about your pride. God doesn't really care about who you've ripped off. God doesn't really care that you're sleeping with your boyfriend. God doesn't really care that you're lying on your tax return. God doesn't really lie that you've got an employee in a situation where they have to do forced overpaid, uh, overtime unpaid. See, this is part of the real evil of sin. It deceives us. It makes us think we're untouchable. It minimizes God. It makes us think that God doesn't see or, or God doesn't really care. Now, whether you're a Christian or not, whether you call yourself a follower of Jesus or not, we are easily deceived by our own hearts. We are easily deceived by sin. So let me ask, do you think you're untouchable? I have moments where there's that little voice in my head that just says, go on, do it. It's not that bad. Besides, Jesus died for all your sins, even the ones you're about to commit. You know, just, just ask for forgiveness later. It'll be fine. No, what, what we see here is that no one is untouchable to God. God always takes sin seriously. God always judges sin. How does that leave you feeling? It's pretty confronting, isn't it? We'll come back to that a little bit later. So pressing on with Obadiah, Obadiah gives us the reason why God will judge Esau. He speaks of Esau's triumph and Jacob's loss in this destruction of Jerusalem. Look with me again at verses 12 to 14, please. You should not gloat over your brother in the day of his misfortune, nor rejoice over the people of Judah in the day of their destruction, nor boast so much in the day of their trouble. You should not march through the gates of my people in the day of their disaster, nor gloat over them in their calamity in the day of their disaster, nor seize their wealth in the day of their disaster. You should not wait at the crossroads to cut down their fugitives, nor hand over their survivors in the day of their trouble. The day of disaster, the day of misfortune, day of trouble. It's pretty clear that this is a day of God's judgment against Judah. And yet God is holding Esau accountable for his actions. Obadiah paints a very bleak picture of Edom's involvement. 
Other passages through the Old Testament from this time back this up as well. Uh, So for example, Lamentations chapter 4, up on the screen behind me, verses 21 and 22. Rejoice and be glad, daughter Edom, you who live in the land of Uz. But to you also the cup will be passed. You will be drunk and stripped bare. Your punishment will end, daughter Zion. He will not prolong your exile, but he will punish your sin, daughter Edom, and expose your wickedness. It's clear that Edom is rejoicing in the destruction of Judah. Or looking over to Ezekiel 35, we have a few different words of judgment against Edom. Because you harbored an ancient hostility and delivered the Israelites over to the sword at the time of their calamity, the time their punishment reached its climax, because you have said these two nations and countries will be ours and we will take possession of them, even though I, the Lord, was there. Or down in verse 15, because you rejoiced when the inheritance of Israel became desolate. That is how I will treat you. You will be desolate, Mount Seir, you and all of Edom. Then they will know that I am the Lord. I mean, we had it clear there. They cut down fugitives. They, they celebrated the fact that they were going to take over this land at a rock-bottom price. And they just rejoiced in the destruction of Jerusalem. Or Psalm 137, this, this psalm of deep lament. Remember, Lord, what the Edomites did on the day Jerusalem fell. Tear it down, they cried. Tear it down to its foundations. We're getting a picture here. The Edomites were popping the popcorn, standing on the sidelines of Jerusalem and going, yeah, tear it down. Now, last weekend, I was at a wedding. It was, it was a beautiful evening. There were plenty of toasts throughout the night to the bride, to the groom, to the bridesmaids, to, to the meal, you know, to their health, to their happiness, to their marriage. In Obadiah verse 16, we read that the Edomites drank to the destruction of Jerusalem. I mean, they were no innocent bystanders. They were active, willing participants in the destruction of God's people. I mean, a best they had tall poppy syndrome or or, uh, schadenfreude you know they delighted in babylon's victory i mean sure they never technically killed any of the jerusalem residents you know sure they never technically dispossessed anyone from judah from their homes from their land but oh boy did they benefit when babylon did they are an excellent example of the difference between the wicked and the righteous throughout the Old Testament. Bruce Waltke, an Old Testament scholar, coins this proverb as he reflects on it. He says, The wicked advantage themselves by disadvantaging others, but the righteous disadvantage themselves to advantage others. The wicked advantage themselves by disadvantaging others. See, Edom's gain was Judah's loss. They gained wealth. They gained land. All it cost them was being willing agents in Judah's destruction. I mean, Esau, Jacob's big brother, Judah's sibling, had an approach of, I'm in it for what I can get out of it. Let's compare them with a different big brother. Uh, Let's compare their actions with Jesus. So in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9, we read, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that through his poverty you might become rich. Jesus willingly disadvantaged himself to advantage us. Jesus willingly came and became a human, gave up his riches 
so that we could be rich. Jesus was willingly crucified, paid the price for sin, so that we could be righteous. Also, we could be treated as God's children. I mean, how good is that? Isn't that so different to how Edom behaves here? Well, a question for us then today. Who do we look more like? Do we look more like the wicked who disadvantage others to advantage themselves? Or do we look more like the righteous who disadvantage themselves to advantage others? Do we look more like Edom or like Jesus? Do we boost our own position at the expense of others? So, for example, do I buy my clothes in such a way that means that someone somewhere along the line had to be enslaved for me to get them for that price? If I've got an investment property for rent, am I charging a fair price? Or am I actually looking to make a big profit off of it at the expense of others? Or in light of NADOC, here's one that I've been wrestling with. Do I get to live here in a beautiful city on the coast of Australia, you know, with relatively affordable housing, do I get to do that here because someone somewhere down the line was forced off land that was theirs? Now, neither me nor my ancestors were technically involved in driving anyone off the land. You know, my, my parents migrated over here. But am I advantaged because someone else is being disadvantaged? Am I profiting off someone else's loss? Am I just repeating the evil of Edom? These are hard questions to wrestle with, aren't they? There's plenty for us to tease out as we go through Obadiah. But I'm so thankful for Jesus. That though he was rich, yet for our sake he became poor. Even though he was perfectly righteous, he gave everything so that we could become righteous. So we could be forgiven. So we could be treated as if we've never sinned. So a question for us, if you're a Christian, if you're someone who follows Jesus today, what do you think the impact could be on the world around us, on our neighbours, our friends, our colleagues, our families, if we were to act more like Jesus, if we were to follow Jesus' example, if we were to willingly disadvantage ourselves for the advantage of others? Well, back to Obadiah. Obadiah finishes off by pointing to a day when God's judgment will come, not just on his people, but on everyone. And in the end, the only kingdom that will last will be God's. Look with me again at verses 15 to 18. The day of the Lord is near for all nations. As you have done, it will be done to you. Your deeds will return upon your own head. Just as you drank on my holy hill, so all the nations will drink continually. They will drink and drink and be as if they had never been. But on Mount Zion will be deliverance. It will be holy. And Jacob will possess his inheritance. Jacob will be a fire and Joseph a flame. Esau will be stubble. And they will set him on fire and destroy him. There will be no survivors from Esau. The Lord has spoken. 
Right here, Obadiah is picking up on a big theme throughout the Old Testament prophets. The day of the Lord. The day of God's coming judgment. The day when God will put all evil aside. When God will judge all evil. And Obadiah promises this day is coming not just for Edom, but for all nations. For every nation that is opposed to God. A day in which God will judge everyone as either righteous or unrighteous. Now here's Tim's quick one-sentence summary of the day of the Lord, what it means. It's the day when God judges evil. Now that's really vague, isn't it? That's, that's a very broad concept. Bear with me. Uh, see, there are multiple days of the Lord throughout the scriptures. I mean, we just read moments ago in Obadiah, verses 12 to 14, about the day of Judah's misfortune. This was a lowercase d day of the Lord. Or the day of the Lord being talked about here in verses 18 to 21. Uh, the day when Edom will be destroyed. Now we know that Edom was eventually dispossessed of their lands by about 400 BC by Nabataeans, uh, and they were never an independent nation again. They were ruled by Greeks, by Romans, so on. But that doesn't really sound like the fulfillment of what Obadiah is talking about here, does it? A day when not just Edom, but all nations are judged by God? A, a day in which all nations will drink the cup of the Lord and be as if they'd never been? Now, this must be another day of the Lord that Obadiah is pointing forward to. A capital D day of the Lord. A day of ultimate judgment. Now, this is a day we read about in moments ago in Revelation chapter 11, verses 15 to 18. The day when God at last establishes his kingdom over all the nations. The day in which Jesus is finally recognized as king of all the nations. See, this is the day of the Lord. Capital letters all the way through. It's the day of final reckoning. And Obadiah was pointing forward to this. In verse 17, he talked about the day when, when Jacob will possess his inheritance and, and there will be deliverance in Mount Zion. Or, or down in verse 21, he looks forward to say that there will be a day when the kingdom will be the Lord's. Not Edom's, not Babylon's, not Rome's, not even Judah's primarily. No, the kingdom will be Yahweh's. The day when God will hold each and every one of us accountable. And we'll all have a choice then. We'll either willingly bend our knee to Jesus the way we have done all our lives. Or we'll be forced to bow our knee to Jesus. In which case, we've lived our lives ignorant of his kingship. Living to sin, living to advantage ourselves at the disadvantage of others. Those are the only two ways we'll bow the knee before Jesus. At Redefinition Camp, one of our rules was that when the lights are out, you're meant to stay in bed. Uh, in fact, we had another rule. We had the rule, you're not allowed to go off-site. No going beyond the boundaries of Adair. We didn't want anyone going missing after all. It kind of just be awkward, lots of paperwork. Um, one night, I'd driven out to McDonald's uh, late at night to do a Macca's run for our leaders. And as I was driving back, I noticed a couple of young blokes walking along the main street of Victor Harbour. These weren't any of our leaders, these were a couple of our youth, so I decided to pull up, wind down the window and said, hey guys, what you doing? Uh, now they were a little bit scared. Um, at that moment they were 100% in the wrong, there was nothing they could say to defend themselves. They couldn't say, oh, you know, one of the leaders told us it was okay to come out right now. And of course not, no leader would say it's okay to go down there. They had nothing to say to defend themselves. They had only one choice. Either apologize and you know, turn back and go straight back to campsite or ignore me and press on to Maccas. 
fortunately, they chose to apologize and go back. Now, in that moment, I could have hit them with a book. I could have said, you guys, you broke the rule. You knew the rule. I'm calling your parents now. I don't care that it's midnight. You're going to get picked up. You're going to be driven home. In the same way, God is well within his rights to throw the book at us, to throw the book at all the nations, to make us drink the cup of his wrath. As we saw before, as we saw earlier, God always judges sin. He always judges evil. We all deserve his wrath. We all deserve for him to judge us. See, we have all lived as if the one true ruler, God, isn't really king. He doesn't deserve our allegiance or obedience. Which means that on this day of the Lord, we don't actually have a hope of our own. We don't have a chance. Like Esau, we are naturally stubble, ready to be set fire to. But the good news for all of us is that there is actually another ultimate day of the Lord. Another day which Obadiah himself points to. In verse 17, he said that there will be deliverance on Mount Zion. Down in verse 21, he said that there will be saviors and deliverers who are exported from Mount Zion. There's, there's some opportunity to escape the wrath of God, to be delivered, to be saved. How, though? Obadiah didn't really know. Some 600 years after Obadiah's vision, though, Jesus was praying in a garden to his father. He said, Father, take this cup from me, yet not what I will, but as you will. You see, when Jesus died on the cross for sin, he drank the cup of God's wrath all the way down to its dregs. All that cup that we deserve, that the nations deserve, that Edom deserved, he drank it down so that there could be salvation on Mount Zion. How do we get it, though? We get it by accepting that Jesus drank the cup we deserved. We get it by accepting that we deserve God's wrath. We deserve God's judgment for the evil we have done. So have you accepted that? Have you accepted that you deserve God's wrath, but that Jesus has drank that cup for you? The alternative is for us to drink that cup ourselves on the last day of the Lord. And as we've seen in Obadiah, that's not going to work out well for us. See, the best thing to do is to actually come to King Jesus' side. It's to defect. It's to repent. It's to say, King Jesus, thank you for drinking God's cup of wrath for me. Now, this means a change in our loyalties. It means we don't live for ourselves. We don't live for our own advantage. We don't live for sin. It means that our family, our job, our money, our security, our friendships, they don't get our hearts before King Jesus does. It actually costs a lot. But King Jesus is the one who died for our sake, who drank the cup for us. He's a good king. Now this cross, this cup that Jesus drank, this was his coronation ceremony. And not long after that, he ascended to his throne. The day when Jesus will judge all evil, all wrongdoing is still coming. The day when he's going to reward his people is still to come. See, when I think about justice, when I think about people getting what they deserve, I kind of just think about the moments when I'm driving and there's someone who's speeding and drives next to me. I really just secretly hope they're going to get pulled over. They're going to, you know, I'm going to drive past them and see them and, and go, yes, justice. 
That's a very paltry form of justice. Now compare that to, to those who have faced deeper injustices, those who have had child support payments skipped on, those who have faced a miscarriage of justice in court, those who are employed and abused by their employers, those who have seen their, their abusers get away with it. They long for justice. They long for this day in which all wrongs will be made right. There is a higher court. There is a higher authority who will judge it all, who will judge all the evil in this world. King Jesus promises that he will judge all evil and vindicate his people. The time has come for judging the dead and for rewarding your servants, the prophets, and your people who revere your name, both great and small, and for destroying those who will destroy this earth. King Jesus will judge it all. Rest in his kingship. Rest in his justice. Long for it. So chances are, us in here, we can't trace our family lineage back to Esau. But whose side are you on? Are you on the side of the king who is on the throne? Have you bowed your knee willingly to King Jesus? I mean, if you're someone in here who's not really sure about who Jesus is, if you're just checking him out for the first time, I'm so glad you're here. Please come and join us for Explore. It's our our short course where we can ask all these questions about who King Jesus is, about how he died for us. Dive into these questions. Find out what makes him worthwhile following. Or on the other hand, maybe you're already convinced that Jesus is king. Maybe you've already bowed your knee to him. But you're just checking us out as a church. And we've got a course called Belong. It's just one afternoon. Come along, join us for a meal, and find out how we as Trinity Church Adelaide are on about following King Jesus, living for his kingdom agenda, and how you can get involved here. See, Obadiah finishes by telling us that the kingdom will be the Lord's. So will you be the Lord's? Will his kingdom priorities be your priorities? Will his kingdom priority of justice be your priority? Will his kingdom priority of righteousness be yours? Let's pray. Father God, you always take sin, evil, and injustice seriously. You took them so seriously that your son, Jesus, drank the cup of your wrath to its dregs. Thank you for Jesus' death on our behalf. Thank you for Obadiah, this short book that helps us long for your kingdom. The kingdom is yours, now and forever. Help us to live for your kingdom agenda. Amen.